Hello fellow readers and welcome to Ravenclaw Readers with me Claire and Ella and Paul. This week we're examining chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised, along with the story of Narcissus. There are a few different versions of the Narcissus myth, but the one we're focusing on comes from book three of Metamorphoses, composed by the Roman poet Ovid in the 8th century AD. Ella, do you want to refresh our memories as to what happens in Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised, please, before I talk about uh, Narcissus? Okay, so it's now Christmas time, and Harry, Ron and Hermione are busy researching the mysterious Nicholas Flamel, but to no avail. As Hermione leaves for the Christmas holidays, Ron and Harry, who are staying at Hogwarts, promise to continue the search. They are distracted from the task on Christmas Day when Harry unexpectedly receives an invisibility cloak which, according to an anonymous note sent with the cloak, had previously belonged to his father. Later that night, Harry decides to use his new invisibility cloak to gain access to the library's restricted section, but a shrieking book blows his cover and he is forced to make a run for it. He ends up in a disused classroom where he finds a magnificent mirror. Instead of his reflection, the mirror shows Harry his parents and extended family. The following night, Harry returns with Ron, but the mirror shows Ron something completely different, himself as head boy holding the house and Quidditch cups. Despite Ron's warning not to return, Harry goes back to the mirror room, except this time Dumbledore is waiting for him, with a warning about the dangers of dwelling on one's impossible dreams. Oh, I thought I was ready to talk about this chapter, but hearing you summarise it, I'm just like, oh... The emotions is so much. Oh, okay. Um, so just briefly, Narcissus is a young man in the bloom of life, so renowned for his beauty that he has an abundance of lovers and admirers. However, trouble soon comes to Narcissus when one of his scorned lovers calls upon the goddess Nemesis, goddess of vengeance, to punish Narcissus for trifling with people's hearts. The goddess obliges this prayer so that one day, when Narcissus takes a drink from a still woodland pool, he catches a glimpse of his own reflection and instantly falls in love. Narcissus is utterly transfixed by his beauty, yet is horrified by the fact that his love is impossible to realise. Grief turns to utter despair and he begins to beat his chest with fury. This continues until he, quote, dissolves, wasted by his passion, slowly consumed by fires deep within. The water nymphs all mourn the loss of beautiful Narcissus, but when time comes for his funeral, they find no body, but instead, in its place, sits a white-petaled flower encasing a saffron centre. And uh, why the secondary text was chosen? Uh, The story of Narcissus felt apt to pair with this chapter, since both tell the tale of unobtainable desire. Now, it may seem unfair to compare Harry to Narcissus, who has rather a shoddy reputation, but in this chapter, Harry faces a similar obstacle to the mythological figure. Both Harry and Narcissus are consumed and obsessed with an image. They fall in love with something that is not and cannot be a reality. What lessons can we learn from their examples? And how important are Dumbledore's words that, quote, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live? Well, I suppose we could talk about dreams before we get to the mirror, because um, one of the things I picked up on on the Christmas Day bits was that it says it had been Harry's best Christmas Day ever. So I thought for Harry, 
being at Hogwarts over Christmas is kind of a dream come true um, because he's surrounded by friends and a kind of adopted family who seem to love and care for him more than his own family in the form of the Dursleys. And he receives presents that he's never had before. Like he gets a Weasley jumper. He can feel part of the Weasley family and he gets his father's invisibility cloaks as another connection to his parents. Um, And he has a delicious Christmas dinner. Very important. Yeah, so it's basically like a dream experience for Harry, who's never had anything like this before. There's a void there, like, which, like, which is that he's not with his family, or uh, yeah. which Malfoy picks up on. It's one of the first things that happens in the chapter is Malfoy's trying to find something to tease Harry about and teasing him about his Quidditch match isn't working because everyone's so impressed by Harry. Um, so he ends up just teasing him about it. Says that he doesn't have a proper family. And I think that, yeah, those words, a proper family, like that's, those are the words that the, the narrator uses, but still like purposefully, I think that that's very cutting, um, you know, and even the letter that he gets from the, the Dursleys, is, oh my gosh, it's like, so he gets a 50p coin that Ron is mesmerized by. Um, and it says his, in, in this letter, we received your message and enclose your Christmas present from Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. It's like a formal correspondence. It's it's almost worse than no gift. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, well, this is something I want to think. Like, why why do you think that he gets a Christmas present at all from the Dursleys? Well, it has it, it plays a function, mm. which is to remind the reader that Harry is still in communication with the Dursleys mm. and that the Dursleys still don't want him. Oh, that's so sad. Can you say it like that? I think narratively, for me, it does make sense that he will get a Christmas present from the Dursley. And my, again, I think we're talking about like canon versus headcanon. This is totally my headcanon, but this is how I, I, I think it would work, is that it is absolutely Aunt Petunia who is sending this gift because she just seems like the type of person it's like keep up appearances and what do you do at Christmas it's just like the done thing to send a gift even if it's like a shoddy little who knows sometimes what does he get terrible little trinkets that aren't really proper gifts but she can like tick that off her list is like okay well I've done the expected thing it does refer to uh his card like we received your your message so it means that you know it shows the importance of that that he wants to hold on to although it's not a proper family as Malfoy says it is all he really has and he 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 doesn't despite joining the wizarding world he doesn't turn his back against it completely he still sends a christmas message to them it's an expression of his deepest deepest desire to have a family to have a family right yes yes i mean that's um we we see you know uh i think does uh dumbledore say just quickly discuss the mirror before we discuss everything else he says um that people have been driven mad trying to make what has appeared a reality and i suppose that's the 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 danger to harry is that he may think that it is possible to resurrect his family somehow via magic mm, yeah but here we have an instance of him trying to actually make it a reality mm. by um although not by resurrecting his dead parents and grandparents but by holding on and maintaining the the bonds which he has with his existing family the his closest relatives Aunt Petunia, Dudley and Pig Boy, and Uncle Vernon. 
think that's why we get so much more emotional resonance though when he yeah. sees his family in the mirror because that is still christmas day when that happens oh, um yeah. which i didn't actually realize until i was closely oh gosh, reading this chapter neither did i it's, it's, it's very late on christmas oh. night i suppose <gasps> And oh, so, I'm just thinking yeah. ahead again. I'm. So, I keep yeah. doing this. I'm thinking it's, to the seventh book. Exactly. I can't help it. <laughs> it yeah, it's Sorry, just you know, it's, it's the Sorry. contrast, isn't it, of like his kind of his sad reality of a family compared to the impossible dream that he'll see later on that day. It reminds me that just that whole sequence of of Christmas Day in Hogwarts reminds me of um the the Christmas ghost story, which is something we sort of yes lost. But of course, like Charles Dickens' famous A Christmas Carol was written in that tradition of every year people write ghost stories and um well we saw the green knight uh, that ella re- said reminded her well, of, that's, of christmas I present mean, oh yes mm. yeah well that's way back but mm-hmm. i mean um you know they're very popular in dickens's time that yeah. that's what you do you publish a christmas story and there is that kind of ghostly floaty christmasy christmas magic christmas magic feast kind of mm. vibe to this sequence so when we're talking about um family and harry's desire for a a proper family that we see in the mirror and then his actual reality of the dursleys we do see the emergence as ella said about um the weasley family becoming his family um and that mrs weasley sends him that that jumper that's so so sweet that's such a lovely gesture I like these these emerging kind of Harry finding this new family. And um, at one point, Ron says something about, um, oh, you'll be able to see my family any old time when you come visit in the summer. And, you know, it's this really offhand remark. And but it's it, it's so sweet that, you know, of course, Harry's going to come visit. And of course, he's going to be kind of part of the family. And, you know, it, it shows just how easily they everyone takes Harry under under their wing. And um, I really liked George in this chapter because Fred and George come in and they make fun of Percy and they say, oh, put on your jumper and, you know, tease him as they do. And then uh, and then George uh, says, you're not sitting with the prefect. Christmas is a time for family. And I thought that was really sweet. And we, we see that his words kind of mean more than he knows later in the chapter with Harry. But I just thought that was lovely. I was like, yes. Very much is. <laughs> the the chapter reminds me of uh, when I was in uh, first went to university in Ireland, and at the um, Christmas break came, and I lived on campus, and everyone left, and it was just me and like two of my like close friends, and it did feel like we had the whole campus to ourselves and the whole um, buildings and things, and it was it was there was a sad looking back, I suppose there's a sadness to it because you choose not to go home like i lived with people i didn't know and they went some of them went back one of them went back every weekend to to all his old like friends back in mayo and stuff all the way to mayo really? yeah every weekend and i very rarely went back i made that choice to stay and that time you spend with your friends there it, it it does it is different. It's spe- it's yeah. It's special, I suppose. You do feel um, like your kindred spirits of a sort. So we've talked about some of the somewhat more positive elements of this chapter. Um, another thing that I thought was funny: they tell Hagrid their entire plan, and I think that's such a kid thing to do. So they're like, 
oh, hey, Hagrid, we know that you're not going to tell us more about Nicholas Flamel, but we've been researching him in the library and they want to show off how smart they are. And I think that is such an 11-year-old kid thing to do. There's no way that like 15-year-old Harry Potter would go around telling Hagrid, this is what I'm up to. But when they're kids, they they kind of just want to show off, haha, look, I've outsmarted you and look look how clever we are by doing all our research. And I thought that Absolutely. Was very, but I mean, you actually see that when you say 15-year-old Harry, because by that point, they're establishing secrecy with Dumbledore's army. So they totally understand the importance yeah. of, you know, keeping your plan a secret by that yeah. point. Is it Does it tell us something about Hagrid that... Mm. Um, that uh, he's more childlike. That he's not one of the adults. Yeah. Despite his enormous stature, he he doesn't loom over the children as the other teachers do. Well, he's not a teacher, but you know that they 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 sort of tell him that there's no consequences to him knowing. <laughs> yeah. It is almost like a tease, teasing him. Yeah, yeah, they are teasing him a bit, but in a nice way. Because Hagrid is so kind, you sort of you can't dislike the man. No. And uh, was it Mal? Was it Malfoy uses mm. him as an insult? Yeah, he says, really "What mean. you're going to become? Just another." He's he teases Ron about becoming a gamekeeper like Hagrid and says that Hagrid's hut must seem like a palace. Oh my god, these are so mean. These insults. Oh, seriously, God, Draco Malfoy knows how to like cut to the bone. He's definitely got something where he can zone in on what people are insecure about and really needle it. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Okay, so I think we've talked a little bit about the nice stuff about this chapter. But I think by mentioning the narcissist story, I think I'm inherently suggesting that there is a negativity to this as well because the narcissist story is uh, kind of... um, tragic and very violent it's very short Ovid's little section on narcissist is quite short but it packs a packs a punch I th- you use the word tragic I think that's important mm. it's it's sort of implied that narcissist is aware that it is his reflection but he continues as if he doesn't know it um I I don't know I don't know if he ever is aware that it's his reflection I thought that was part of his punishment because for narcissus it was um the goddess who made him fall in love with his, with his reflection as a punishment for the fact that he never gave his love to anybody else, mm-hmm. particularly Echo, um, but also other people who loved him during their life who he just totally ignored. And so they thought, well, if he's not going to share his love, then he's not going to be able to have anything that he ever loves. Um, so I thought that would that was part of the punishment was that he would never know that it was himself. He'd just be tormented by somebody who he loved and thought it was just constantly out of his grasp. I read it that he eventually does become aware that it is his reflection, but it doesn't really change the fact that he can't... It's still unobtainable. Yeah, I think part of the... It's unattainability is part of the, 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 the fixation on it. Mm-hmm. So if you, I think in, in comparing these two chapters, it's... I, I, I thought to myself, what would Narcissus see in the mirror? Mm. Would he see two versions of himself? Or would he just see himself? I think he would just see himself um, because he loves himself. If there, well, if uh, he loves the immateri- immateriality of the reflection and the unattainability of his ref- himself, um, if there was two of them, then which one would he be in mm. the reflection? He can't be both, and therefore it's not a love of self. 
but it's really interesting when because Dumbledore says when Harry's asking how the mirror works and he says if you picture you know the happiest man in the world all he would see was like himself because he doesn't have to see anything reflected back at him because he's already got everything he wants to be happy so but Narcissus isn't no, particularly content absolutely I think so would he see himself like I don't know I think well, so what if your des- your desire is something the realization of which would deem it repulsive so mm. if you had it, it would yeah. no longer well, we're getting be very Freudian here, guys. desirable. <laughs> this is getting very deep. Yeah. And I think that's sort of Narcissus's desire. It's this um, unchecked sort of sentimental desire for himself. It's all consuming. Yeah, it's, kind of it's like everything. everything. So I think, I think it's important to discuss the idea of um, sentimentality and sincerity. So I think Narcissus's love for himself is a sentimental love as opposed to a sincere love in that a sentimental love is, is it's directed at the self uh, rather than taking the world into account. To me, what it feels like you're trying to say is Dumbledore's quote, which says, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. So I guess the moral of both the stories is that dreams are important and valuable things but you must never lose sight of reality and what's actually attainable because we see both well narcissus in particular who becomes so obsessed with his reflection that it ends up being to the detriment of everything around him and he just starts to waste away because he forgets to eat and he doesn't ever want to leave the pool because he always wants to constantly look at his reflection and we see the beginnings of that in harry after yeah. a couple of nights of going to the mirror he suddenly starts to thinking well what's the point of nicholas Fumel? i don't mm-hmm. even care who he is like i don't even care about ron i just want to go and sit with my parents all night mm-hmm. so you know he's already beginning to lose sight of reality and nothing else really matters to him apart from this this impossible dream harry's vision is a sentimental vision and you think it being sentimental is a negative thing yes so he looks out when he looks out into the actual world when he looks at christmas um he sees an an, an absence of his family so Mm. christmas is marked by the absence of his family his detailing of the outer world is emphasis is a truth about himself this truth of this you know um his personality his desire the mirror fills that void at the expense of the entire world he's only interested in like you say he compulsively returns to the mirror to look at this just as narcissus is he only evokes the outer world to say is there anyone out there whose love is as dire and my situation is as dire as mine so i have a quote here regarding sincerity and sentimentality which is sincere expression coincides with an intention with an attention to and realization of attendant circumstances or that a sent- or, and that a sentimental emotion is one that outruns the control of any justifying thought. But to answer your original question, is this tragic? <laughs> that is an original I, question. I that, yeah. <laughs> so this is what I'm trying to answer. Harry Potter's feelings uh, is sentimental, but um, Rowling's depiction of the scene is not. Mm-hmm. So Harry, through noble motive, could potentially bring about the, his ruin by trying to resurrect his family, this fixation on the image, just as Narcissus brings about his own ruin. And that is tragic. So G.K. Chesterton, talking about um, Dickens, says that there's in the whole works of Dickens, there is only one tragic character, mm-hmm. which is in Bleak House and Richard Karsten because it is through noble endeavors that he brings about his own ruin and for G.K. Chesterton that's what tragedy is Mm -hmm. 
And here we could see Harry's, um, you know, he means well, but he could bring about his ruin. Now, interestingly, <laughs> compare that to Ron's vision, which is, um, so Harry doesn't know how to bring about, how to realize his vision. There's an impossibility in it, just as Narcissus's love for himself is impossible because it's himself and his reflection. But Ron's uh, vision or his dream to be respected head boy um, he doesn't, th the way to make that real is uh, not through some unknown means, but through his brothers, through um, through his uh, uh, peers and things like that. So he has to look into the outer world in, in order to make his dreams realizable. And he doesn't, he's not constantly, anxiously, he doesn't want to return to Mary. He sees the danger that Harry faces. And I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. distinction. So, yeah, that's what I, I wanted to talk about what Ron sees in the mirror because, yeah, he sees himself as head boy and he's won the Quidditch Cup and he's achieved everything and more that his brothers have, have achieved. And I guess it's kind of easy to read. And I think in the past I have read this chapter like this and see Harry's, uh, what Harry sees in the mirror is so deep and painful and like beautiful but terribly sad and Ron seems almost superficial compared to that when you just read it you know oh he just wants well, popularity and you know to be uh, you know social rank but I think that that is probably an unfair reading of of Ron um I don't know what what do you think Ella do you think that Ron what Ron sees is superficial or do you think there's a depth to it I think it's maybe kind of halfway in between mm -hmm. because compared to Harry who sees his family and there's this kind of really deep emotional connection to what he's seeing something really profound um Ron's does sort of pale in comparison to that but then it unlike Harry's impossible dream, Ron's dream is actually attainable. Right. Yeah, and, like and, saying, and we do yeah. see some of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, the Gryff Gryffindor house does win the House Cup. They do win the Quidditch Cup. And he might not become head boy, but Ron does become a prefect. So we do see some of that coming to fruition of what he wants from his life, mm -hmm. um, which I think perhaps because it is an attainable dream, it doesn't seem as tragic or as compelling as Harry's because we know that Harry can't have that and it's mm. devastating to us as readers because we just want him to be able to experience that family. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think it's uh, Dumbledore says that you gain neither truth nor knowledge from can come from the mirror um, uh, other than obviously the knowledge of your desire, but that's neither here nor there. I suppose that's... I don't, but, but is he saying that that knowledge is in not, itself is not a truth? Because it comes from, it's not, yeah, it's, yeah, perhaps. Well, you could make the argument that truth and knowledge, like, uh, is it comes from the outer world mm -hmm. rather than the inner world. And Ron does not gain the knowledge about how to achieve his desires, as I said, from the mirror, but through um, the institutions in which he lives <laughs> so strangely enough it's hit by fulfilling his desires ron's desires he fulfills harry's wish in a way because in doing so a byproduct of him 
looking up to his brothers is that he respects them and that mm. he reinforces these family bonds. Um, and this does not come from the mirror. This comes from the real world and his mm. knowledge to do so. Whilst, so I don't think his desire is superficial. Bear in mind now, he's, a, what is he? 11? Yeah, like 11 year old boy. Yeah. I think we're so um, in awe of the profundity of Harry's yes. that any, you know, most people's would seem perhaps less profound but i think it's often the uh, you know i've recently spent a lot of time with my 90 year old grandmother and she is very simple in a way but there's a great profundity to the way in which she leads her life which is one which focuses on responsibility to your to your family and it's as it, when I was a teenager, I thought she was, you know, it was simple and she was an uncomplicated woman. But I see now that, like, she is a role model. If I follow in her footsteps, I can have a deep and meaningful life with my family and friends. Yeah, I, because he's still so young, but those could be the the impulses behind what he sees, even if he yet doesn't understand them. Whereas Harry's are very very different it's it it goes back to that question of ends and means well ron you see well in both instances you see the end um and uh Uh oh yeah being a boy being having quit it yeah but the the means in achieving that has a positive outcome whilst the means of harry's well there's no means it's impossible it's a dream which he can only experience whilst dreaming but to answer that interesting point about the happiest man, so I mean, I have spoken of uh, sincerity and uh, uh, and sentimentality, uh, but you could you could some people are, would argue that sincerity is 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 just a mere a matter of correspondence between inner and outer expression. So you get the idea that like a good poem is like one that really you know expresses my inner feelings and stuff like that, which is not necessarily. I wouldn't ag- ag- agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we say Shakespeare is a genius not because he expressed his own personal feelings, but because he represented the whole the whole gestalt or gamut human of, of experience. human experience. Yeah. So there's this idea that um, so if you take sincerity as that correspondence between inner and outer expression, then the mirror just becomes a sort of sincerity machine, <laughs> like it is sincerity itself. But then, of course, someone's desires, there is no, a man with no desires is not a happy man. There is no such, yeah, I, I would. So the happiest man in the world that Dumbledore speaks of, it, it doesn't exist. The only person who would see their own reflection in the mirror of Erisad is Narcissus. Guys, we haven't even talked about the cloak. Oh my God. Well, I think that the cloak and the mirror are inherently like linked. So we have these two devices that seem to speak to one another in a strange dialogue. And of course, the link between the cloak and the mirror for Harry's uh, point of view is his family. Mm-hmm. And we know, spoilers, Paul, but I'm sure you've already figured it out. Dumbledore is the one that sent Harry the cloak. And well, duh. <laughs> he, um, he says in the letter, um, it is time I returned it to you. So it is an acknowledgement that this is something that 
doesn't belong to Dumbledore and that it has always belonged to Harry, even if Harry didn't know it and was never even aware of it because it was his father's. And as we will find out, it goes back further in his family history and he's told to use it well. And these words echo around in his head when he uh, tries on the cloak for the first time to sneak around Hogwarts and mm-hmm. sneak into the restricted section to find out about Nicholas Flamel. And those, uh, that idea of use it well corresponding with Dumbledore's advice of do not dwell on dreams. Like Dumbledore's given a lot of advice in this chapter. I mean, it's been so strange, Harry, not having his invisibility cloak. I was saying in the Midnight Jewel chapter, when we were just talking about it amongst ourselves, I was saying, it's so weird. I kept thinking, why doesn't he just throw on the cloak? And oh, he doesn't have it yet. It's just because it, it's almost an extension of him, right? Like it becomes, it's it's so much a part of of him and and how he gets around Hogwarts and how he, he navigates, um, as well later with the with the Marauders map. But you know that that a little bit less so just because it's introduced later in the series. Mm. I don't know. So I'm I'm wondering if you know. So this this cloak is something that can be used well. It can be used for ill, but it can be used well. But the the mirror of Erised is something that in this chapter doesn't seem really like it can be used well or at least the way that harry's using it now is not how to use it well and it comes back around it later in the in the in the uh, final few chapters of this book that the mirror can be used well but harry does not yet know how to use it the mirror the mirror yeah oh you just wait paul oh you just wait this is the the cloak does facilitate the realization of his desires like you mm. say so like he so it comes from his family he wants to, to family. go into this unrestricted this um unrestricted or this restricted zone mm-hmm. he has this desire to do so and the the it's the he has this moment of excitement where all of all of a sudden he realizes it is now possible all of hogwarts was open to him it's such all a Hog- magical yeah. idea but even at the, at the start i was i was I thought it was quite nice when he put on the cloak first. Mm. He the first thing he did was look in the mirror because he desired to see himself invisible. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite interesting. Well, it would it, it plays with that idea of desire and, mm. and and reflection stuff. But I I just liked that idea of looking at your I because that's exactly what I would do. I yeah. go straight to a mirror and look at myself yeah. <laughs> or lack of myself. But it does seem from the the get go once Harry does stumble across across the mirror that when he figures out how it works in that he, he realizes that there's no one else in the room he he sees who he realizes in a few minutes is his mother but he says you know there's this woman standing there and um she and the others only existed in the mirror and i think that was just such a sad sentence and then it's after that he he realizes that it's his family um so harry is aware pretty much from the get-go that this 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 thing is unobtainable but do you think that dumbledore is right to kind of warn him i was definitely reading dumbledore's warning to harry in contrast with the story of narcissus and particularly the contrast between dumbledore and echo so um Echo is uh, a nymph who falls in love with Narcissus, but she can't convey her love because fate has decreed that she can only repeat back the words of others. She can't really express herself by herself. Um, And she fails to tell Narcissus about her love and he rejects her. And then she sort of 
wastes away pining for him and then later she is brought back to watch him as he himself wastes away pining for his own reflection and i i kind of thought that dumbledore's almost like a reverse echo because he he is able to warn harry about the dangers of pining after impossible dreams and would narcissus have been saved from his fate if echo had been able to act like dumbledore does to harry if she'd been able to step in and say you can't do this you will die and that's just i just sort of read it like that how it's a kind of a tragic parallel of that harry could very easily have become narcissus if he didn't have dumbledore there to warn him I think I'm getting a deeper respect for Dumbledore. Like, I've always liked Dumbledore's character. And I know that um, I'm definitely not, like, a complete Dumbledore apologist. And I do recognize that, you know, he's he's a grayer character than he initially appears. And I love that. I think that's great. Um, but I, I, I do really um, find, like, this chapter, the way it we were saying this is so strange that this is harry's first meaningful interaction with dumbledore like how crazy is it this far into the book um like this is the first time they've seen each other since harry was a baby and harry doesn't remember that um and i really do think the way that dumbledore approaches it it's actually a really short bit at the end of the chapter but it is it is so perfect and the way he gets down he sits down on the floor next to harry and like does does all these these things that you know connect connects with him in a way that maybe um, other adults haven't really connected with Harry before, even even ones that Harry loves, like Hagrid, or you know respects, like Professor McGonagall. Um, and part of that is, um, again, Paul's at a bit of a disadvantage, but when we know more about Dumbledore, we can see that you know possibly Dumbledore is reading a lot of his own experiences mm. into what Harry is seeing. This chapter teaches us an important limitation on magic, which mm. magic can be used to fulfill your desires, as we've seen with the magic cloak, which Harry learns again. But there is a limit to what it can achieve. It mm-hmm. cannot bring people back from the dead, no. and it cannot prevent death, and it cannot change the past. Is there time travel in the later books? I don't there know. is, but it is very limited in what I can do. We're not counting Chris Child as canon, guys, remember? Um, time t- no, the whole thing about in, in the Harry Potter book series, choosing my words carefully, time travel exists, but you can't change the past. It's a, it's a loop. What, what has happened will always have happened. Magic seems like this strange mix between like love and power, because it Mm. oh my god paul the two like main themes of harry potter here (laughs) because you can use it to realize your goals Mm. and in a sense it but it's still because it's not in unbounded it also sort of sets those goals like you can't Mm. your goal can't be to raise the dead for instance or to do something impossible but it also i suppose the 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 danger of it is that why can't it be used to raise the dead? I think with like raising the dead and with immortality, the thing about magic is that you can actually do these things, but you shouldn't because there are lots of repercussions to it. And ultimately achieving that will just bring you more pain than if you hadn't mm-hmm. done it at all. Mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. It definitely applies to 
really profound issues yeah. like that. In uh, the narcissist story, it's narcissist realizes um, that he can't obtain his reflection in, in the in the pool, and he says, "So very small a thing it is that keeps us from our loving." And that just reminded me of this, you know, when something is so close and yet so far. And I think that despite the differences in the narcissist and Harry's circumstances of what they see uh, reflected back at them, maybe Harry feels something like that. The, The image of his parents and his family and what he just craves more than anything is so close that he can almost touch it, but he can't. You you said about narcissists saying that. What what was the line? So very small a thing it is that keeps us from our loving. That's what makes it so engrossing. Mm. It's, it's tantalizing. That's why Harry gets so obsessed. It's yeah, it's like a fantasy object which mm. like becomes looms a lot. It's it's it is um like internet addiction or social media addiction in a way, because uh because you 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 are always on the with social media and stuff. You're always on the you always run the risk of actually achieving something, but you never do. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's it's immaterial. So I think that it's it's true in that, in a way, yes, the the image that Harry sees is like a fantasy object. Uh, and it says here, this is what it says of of Norris's, um situation: that image of an image without substance arrives with you, and with you it remains, and it will leave when you leave if you can. So that's the the the, the, the taunting of narcissists. Mm-hmm. I think Harry feels that taunting of the image, but the image represents more than an image. For narcissists, it's an image of an image, so it's the image of his image. There's there's nothing really there. There's no there's no base. But with Harry, again, it sounds kind of corny, but the, it's not an image of an image. It's an image of something real, and that reality is love. <laughs> That's and a... he can take that with him and bring it into the real world. But, I mean, he can't take his family because they're dead. But he can take what that image stands for and bring it into the real world and, you know, be part of the Weasley family and, and, and carry that with him as he goes on. We've all been in a situation where you need to do something. It might be write an essay, it might clean your house or something, but you end up, like, on a loop watching YouTube videos. Yeah. And I feel like that is what the modern day narcissist situation mm. it would end if all you could do is walk away from it and there and you know that but you continue watching and that makes it worse because mm. you know and you can, just can't walk away it's like an addiction yeah the magic i like the magic mirror being a very um a staple of fairy tales and mythology and lore i mean even think about like disney films that are you know based on mirror mirror on the wall mirror mirror on the wall yeah the snow white and a beauty and the beast as a magic mirror shows yeah it's a world. even in the matrix they go into a mirror do they yeah, when they when they when you take Neo takes the pill, he touches a mirror, and that's what oh, he goes through. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I mean, so clearly, like Rowling is is drawing on this this um this symbol. Yeah. yeah, it's like um, uh, it's like a movement, an an internal movement almost passing through the mirror because it 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 represents like something which has gone inside your mind because you you are the same, mm-hmm. but you have changed somehow. You have confronted yourself. And 
had an epiphany or realization or something. I'm wondering this. You say it goes inside your mind, but this mirror shows. I mean, Dumbledore says it can show not knowledge or truth, but it, it does show some kind of truth because, as we have established, Harry doesn't know what his parents look like. He doesn't know what his family looks like. Definitely. It definitely has a and, gives a precision to her desires that our language can't. But he sees his mother crying. Like, she's smiling and she's happy, but she's crying. And then his father puts his arm around her to comfort her. If, if Harry really wanted to see his, his deepest desire, would his mother be crying? But you see, the thing is as well, the, the, his mirror parents act in the same way as they do in yeah. the wizard pictures, wizard photos that oh, Harry yeah, has yeah. of them. But he doesn't have them yet, though, does he? He doesn't. He no. will get them. Yeah. But I thought there must be some element of truth to the mirror image mm. because they are exactly the same in every other format we see them in, which is, you know, in in pictures. In pictures or in um, the, uh, yeah, the, the Resurrection Stone. Oh, guys, I thought this chapter was rough. The Resurrection Stone chapter is going to get me in the seventh book. I'm not even ready to talk about that. <laughs> and in the Goblet of Fire as well. When, oh, yes. When we see the ghost figures appear out oh, of the ones. Oh, I can't do yeah, it. They yeah, they are fundamentally recognizably the yes, same absolutely. in all of these different mediums mm-hmm. that we see them I, in what makes the mirror so enticing is that how real it is so it has yeah. to be as real as possible otherwise mm-hmm. it's not it doesn't fulfill that fantasy desire it must like be as real and gross as possible and it does that it's not just his parents it's just grandparents yeah, and, everything else. and they're crying yeah. so that's it's almost it's it's almost as if they're look they're real looking down at him from heaven or something like that mm-hmm. and that's it doesn't mean that um the mirror is showing him a truth really it's just showing him a very convincing lie mm-hmm. socks does dumbledore see socks i can't go on to socks from just what we were talking about but then again dumbledore does okay if dumbledore can do it i'm gonna have to do it too um yeah what do you make of this line about him seeing socks well, I've never believed that he's seen socks. No, Harry doesn't either. Harry doesn't No, it. no. Um, but I've never been sure of what it is he does see. And my idea of what he does see was only really formed when we get more of Dumbledore's backstory in the Deputy yeah. Hallows. Mm-hmm. But also, again, I know we talked about it in our canon episode about how things outside the books, should they, can they influence how you perceive the books? Mm-hmm. And I now can't unsee what Dumbledore sees in the Mirror of Error said in Fantastic Beasts 2. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm now thinking, ooh, so does that mean he's seeing Grindelwald in the mirror? I don't know. Oh, Which no, I feel it's, like, no, it's you. I mean, I feel like that could, that could be supported by what we see in the seventh book as well. Mm. Although that wasn't what I thought he saw, if you get me. Yeah, I, I really don't know what Dumbledore sees. Well, we know that what you see in the mirror can change. So even whether or not you want to regard you know, what happens in Fantastic Beasts as as like canon or, or whatever, I mean, it's still possible that it could change. I don't know. I always felt like it had something to do with his family. Um, with Ariana in particular, yeah. I always thought. Who? <laughs> Sorry, Paul is so lost here. Paul, okay, you don't really know anything about Dumbledore's um, like history. What do you think the socks... Why does he say socks? Well... For one thing, it teaches Harry a lesson. So we know what Harry's desire is throughout the book. It's sort of fed to us on a on a magic spoon, like that that if that family is his deepest dark yeah, desire, and I he don't expresses think that it. ever changes either. But here it teaches Harry that what people want is not necessary. They're not willing to reveal what they actually 
desire. Mm. And this, um, that's a, a much more, um, that's a nuanced adult sort of uh, realization, right? It's sort of similar to that realization where you realize your parents aren't, um, that they're lied to you, that they're, they're, they don't know everything. But I think Dumbledore's vision, even if it's not true, it does, it is maybe revealing because his wish is not, it's not for something, it's to change the way people think about him. He says, everyone thinks I want books, but my, his desire is to get socks. What was you see in the mirror? Oh, my God. Um, I have absolutely no idea what I'd see in the mirror. Problem, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. The mirror. that's what Paul was saying is like, would you not be some like, what if your deepest desire is something that you are horrified by? And you're like, oh, my God. Is that me? I'm so worried that I would look into the mirror and see something which is unattainable, mm. almost by definition impossible because that i don't know if i would have the strength not to either walk away from the mirror or try to make it a reality and i'm terrified of that loop or that that you know that that way lies madness i do believe Mm. that i'm too scared to look into the mirror i wouldn't do it also desires change all the time i think but I, i i suppose i worried that the thing that I really want is failure. To not <laughs> succeed. Mm. And I worry about that. I definitely can think of what I probably would have wanted when I was a teenager. Um, and it would be very different to what I, I think I'd see now. And it kind of, I like I'm pretty sure I know what I would have seen when I was a teenager and it makes me really upset. <laughs> um I just think that like my deepest desire when I was a teenager was just like it's I I'm pretty sure like I don't know maybe part of me is like oh but it was your deepest desire it would be something deep and meaningful like you know what Harry sees but I don't think so I think yeah what I would have seen as a teenager would just be just like something I I I, I feel sad for myself that I would have desired that thing I don't know I think I would look in the mirror Paul says he wasn't I don't know Ella would you look in the mirror do you think I don't know again I don't know what I'd see I don't know if I'd even want to look um yeah, it's like that, you know, like if, if somebody told you I can tell you exactly when and how you're going to die, would you want to know or would you just want to carry on living? Because what if they said, oh, you're going to die in a year's time? Would you then, you know, want to be able to make the most of your life for that year? Or would you rather just not know at all and just carry on? Very quickly, though, I just want to say that here we see, a, again, a basis of magic objects that they sort of respond to inward feelings in an, in a strange way so the broom responds to harry's bravery the wand responds to uh ron's fear when he wants to kill the troll thing and here we have the mirror of backwards desire responding to inward feelings of desires so it seems to be an a recurring mm. mechanism and then i'm still pushing the idea that dark magic then is tries to change that expression somehow to obfuscate that expression i don't know alters the expression makes your broom freak out or change someone change someone's desires i don't know we don't have a we didn't have a quote does anyone have a quote they want to end on i already mentioned my quote which was the whole kind of it doesn't do to dwell on dreams bit 
So I've already said that. So somebody else has got another quote. Um, so this is Roger Scruton on, on uh, uh, fantasy and imagination. So it's perhaps important to say that um, he makes the distinction between fantasy and imagination. Just the fantasy object, which is perhaps what you see in the mirror, mm. intrudes into the real world. It is an unreal object of actual desire condemned to unreality by the mental prohibition that also summons it. The fantasy object must be as real as possible in order to provide the surrogate for what which the subject craves. Fantasy covets the gross, the explicit, the no-hold-barred display of the unattainable, and in the crisis of display, the unattainable is vicariously obtained. You you think that what Harry sees is inherently sentimental, that it's a fantasy object. Yeah. I Whereas do. I think that Harry, with Dumbledore's instruction and with Dumbledore's guidance, can take the the goodness from what he's seen. The the love. No, I think that's no, I think that's true, and I think that's why your point about Echo is such an interesting one. That Dumbledore is the reverse Echo in a sense because he instructs as a teacher should um harry how to feel mm. he provides the knowledge about how to feel mm. about this uh um so, reflection which mm-hmm. uh, harry wouldn't reflect on that reflection if it wasn't for <laughs> dumbledore's suggestion to reflect i mean i have one potential final point um we've talked a lot here at Ravenclaw Readers about the significance of names mm. um, to the extent that we've even thought that we might have a footnotes episode on it. Um, yeah. But I it thought, will come. yeah, <laughs> but I thought like, what we see here is a very direct linguistic parallel to Narcissus in Narcissa, Malfoy's mother. And um, <laughs> that's, that's Draco Malfoy's mother. We'll meet her. At Draco some Malfoy's mum. Yeah. God, not for um, ages. Not, not for a long time. Goodness, that's yeah. Like the fourth book or something yeah. insane. Anyway. But I thought it can. You know, can we draw any significance from this particular parallel? Because of course Narcissus is also a flower, and there are a lot of flower names in Harry Potter. Mm. But was the name Narcissa chosen because of the flower or because of Narcissus? Yeah, I think that we can definitely dig into that because I, I I was thinking. Should we do a names one? Yeah, we're gonna have to. Let's do a names one. Lily, Lily, and then Petunia. Petunia. Paul, you need to at least know the basics. Lily and James are the names of his parents, okay? And it's Harry, Ron, and. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And uh, we'd like to know your thoughts because we have got a few me- emails and messages from people and it's so lovely. Email us at ravenclawreaderspod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at ravenclawreaders. And as well, you can always look at our website for any of the show notes or talking about the secondary texts and that's just ravenclawreaders.com. Next week, we will be looking at chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. And we will be reading um, another extract from William Shakespeare's Hamlet. We'll be looking at Act 1, Scene 5, which is the scene in which Hamlet um, meets his father's ghost. Bye! But um, so the magic of the mirror is really strange, right? Because... Um, it does show your face. It... <laughs> what if you got a mirror and held it up to the mirror? <laughs> Don't try to trick it.